Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome So we are currently on the roof of 103 Orchard Street. Currently, this building is home to the Tenement Museum. Catherine Lloyd is the director of programming at the Tenement Museum, which preserves and teaches the history of tenement housing in New York City. Tenements are narrow, low-rise apartment buildings with a series of small rooms and tight shared spaces. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, these buildings housed multiple families on each floor. The museum itself is actually a former tenement building. And this word tenement becomes associated with multifamily housing um, and often becomes associated with um, difficult living conditions because of the lack of ventilation, of enough space for people living inside of these buildings. Lack of ventilation. Did you catch that? That's why Catherine had us climb up to the roof of the building to show us a solution to that problem. In the middle of the building is a square hole cut into the roof that runs all the way to the ground. And you can peer down into what looks like a small courtyard. This would not have been here originally when these buildings were constructed. And with uh, the 1901 Tenement Housing Act, this was a New York state law, there was a requirement for every tenement building to have ventilation, running water, um, and gas light within the buildings. Additions such as these shafts were put into law to improve ventilation and airflow. Science at the time said it was much healthier. In the late 19th century, people are finally starting to understand how disease spreads. So air shafts and the accompanying ventilation were seen as a solution to the public health crises that were happening in tenement buildings. There were high cases of tuberculosis, diphtheria, um, other diseases that spread, now we know, um, that spread um, sort of through the air. We're still facing these challenges of people living in spaces that don't have adequate ventilation. Um, And, you know, certainly today this is becoming a priority again when maybe it hasn't been on our minds for, you know, many decades. Today we're going to look at how the novel coronavirus travels through the air and how some simple strategies to improve airflow in our homes and our buildings, strategies that we've had for decades, may help us fight this pandemic today. We first ran this episode in August, and at the time, the CDC did not yet have guidelines addressing the spread of the coronavirus through small droplets called aerosols that can remain suspended in the air for a while. Since then, they've revised their guidance to say that the virus is mainly spread through respiratory droplets, both large and small. The large droplets fall to the ground fairly quickly and don't get too far, but the small ones can travel far from the source, That's why gathering in enclosed places for prolonged periods of time with poor ventilation is simply a recipe for transmission. That last part, poor ventilation, is why I wanted to revisit this episode today. Many parts of the country are beginning to make plans for the reopening of schools and restaurants, movie theaters, and other places where people will gather together indoors for prolonged periods of time. 
So what strategies can we put in place to make those indoor spaces as safe as possible? I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. Earlier in the 1900s, we set ventilation standards for exactly that, infectious disease transmission. In the 70s and 80s, we started tightening up our building envelopes, choking off the air supply, which is really the crux of the problem and is why we find ourselves in this space right now of having underventilated buildings everywhere we go. Joseph Allen is an assistant professor of exposure assessment science at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's also the co-author of the book Healthy Buildings, How Indoor Spaces Drive Performance and Productivity. Much of Professor Allen's research is about how airflow in buildings promotes good health. Lately, he's been looking at whether the novel coronavirus can travel through the air at distances greater than six feet and then infect someone. That's called airborne transmission. Since the very early days of the pandemic, he's been studying the buildings and conditions where COVID-19 outbreaks have happened to see whether or not this could be a way the virus spreads. And when I first started seeing these outbreaks, the big ones, the cruise ship and the Biogen conference, um, I felt there were telltale signals that airborne transmission was probable. Uh, The first thing piece I wrote was in early February saying healthy buildings should be the first line of defense against this novel coronavirus. Um, And knowing that, you know, the scientific debate, let's call it, about modes of transmission would continue for many months. It's still happening now. It'll continue for decades. But we knew enough to act even in early February that we should put in these prudent control measures like enhanced ventilation, enhanced filtration, knowing that the science would still work out and maybe airborne is 2%, maybe it's 50%. But we knew enough that it was likely it was happening. And I always felt right strongly right from the beginning, uh, it was prudent to put in those controls. What do you and your, your team, what do you think is happening right now? with how this novel coronavirus actually moves through an environment. Again, I think the picture that a lot of people have in their mind is a cough, a sneeze, talk, breathe, sing, a certain amount of respiratory droplets go really no more than six feet. What is the picture that you're, you're envisioning here? Yeah, so it's, it's, a, li- it's a little more nuanced, um, but I will say I think the guidance on six feet is important. It's a good starting point. Let's say six feet is the minimum, 10 feet's better. You must wear a mask. Every model my team has developed, others have, have developed, this really helps uh, because it controls how much viral particle is released into the room. Then you have to control the dose or the exposure. So distance is important. And then anything that's going to be in the air and linger, you have to remove. And you remove that through dilution. So bring in as much outdoor air as you can. I do want to be clear about airborne transmission, though. You know, we're not, it's a scary term to a lot of people. But it doesn't mean, you know, if I cough or sneeze, I'm infectious, that, you know, these particles are going to waft down the street into my neighbor's house. It just means aerosols that can stay aloft for longer than 30 minutes, sometimes several hours. And there's the potential for exposure and catching this within that room or within an adjacent room if the conditions present themselves. Like if I shut all the windows in the room I'm in now, uh, there'll be a buildup over time. And that buildup means people, somebody can get infected beyond that six-foot distance. I'd like to sort of work through this with you, Professor, just so, you know, we can all understand, because you've raised this issue of, of aerosol transmission several times. The Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Fauci, the World Health Organization have all sort of basically said, look, we're thinking about this. But I get the sense from 
hearing your conversations with people that uh, you feel like they may be slow, even hesitant to emphasize airborne transmission of COVID as a legitimate thing here. Why, why do you think that is? What, why is? Why is there hesitancy around this? Why do I think there's a reluctance? I think it goes, I know it goes back to decades of really a false understanding of the basics of particle physics. So we won't bore everyone with the particle physics, but the reality is for mu- much of history, the medical community and others have thought that at five micron particles, settle out of the air within six feet, which is where that six foot rule comes from. But if you look at the basics of aerosol physics, we know that's not true at all. In fact, a five micron particle can stay aloft for 30 minutes or more even with typical air flows indoors, can travel well beyond six feet. And all of this information is drawing to one conclusion that airborne transmission is not just maybe it's happening, but it's, it's happening. And it just means we have to add these healthy building control strategies to the arsenal of controls we're already doing. Masking, hand washing, distancing, and bring in a little more outdoor air and use better filters. Uh, generally speaking, someone coughs or sneezes, or as we know with the case of this virus, could even be talking or breathing and put a certain amount of virus into the air. And it's large enough where it'll go a certain distance, call it six feet, the World Health Organization says maybe just even a meter, and then it sort of falls to ground. Someone is within that range, they could potentially become infected or they could touch a surface that has become contaminated. You're suggesting something different with aerosol transmission. So what would happen? How, how would the virus then move around if not sort of in this respiratory droplet? But what happens quickly, and I mean within seconds, is that the larger respiratory droplet evaporates, right? So the majority of the particles, airborne particles that come out of your mouth are in the 10 micron range or smaller. Smaller particles will stay aloft indefinitely. In fact, they'll stay aloft until one of four things happens. One, they'll eventually deposit out or impact out on walls or surfaces. Two, they will be diluted in that space through ventilation. Three, they will be cleaned out of the air through filtration. Or four, they're deposited in the lungs. And of course, that's the one we're trying to control here. So most people don't realize that, you know, that's beyond six feet, we can have these exposures. Now, to be fair, the closer you are to someone, the greater the dose will be. So distance still matters. The virus does travel beyond the six feet, but the greatest intensity of exposure will still happen in close proximity to someone. To that point, Professor, do we know what dose is necessary to cause an infection? This is a major outstanding question. We don't know what the dose-response shape is for aerosols or droplets or even fomites. And so we just don't know. What we do know, what it looks like, and this is real benefit of mass, is the dose makes the poison. And that if you have a lower dose, uh, you're likely to have a less, a less likely of getting infected, but also if you do have an infection, less severe infection. So there, would control it with mass, Anything that's in the air, you want to control with ventilation and filtration, and of course, distancing, or time outdoors even better, Uh, and then with distancing also reduces your dose. You know, I raised this issue about dose and then add into there two more Ds, distance and duration, because if you look at a lot of the contact tracing studies, and these these are some that have come out of not just uh, places like South Korea, but now some contact tracing studies in the United States, the highest risk contacts are those individuals with whom you share a home. You're you're living with people. Does that lead you to believe that even if this does 
this this virus is traveling via aerosol, that it's being actually spread primarily through droplets. All three modes of transmission are operating, operating droplets, airborne, fomite, or contaminated surfaces. And even the, the within-home transmission, it can be everything, right? So you're in a home, you're close contact with people, but you're also sharing the same air. And, and homes are have a low air exchange rate. So to put some numbers on this, a typical home has, in the U.S., is 0.5 air changes per hour. That means every hour, about half the volume of the air in the home is replaced with outdoor air. So not a lot of air changes happening. So even if you're close to someone or maybe six or 10 feet, there's still a buildup of indoor uh, pollutants happening. So in addition to trying distancing, which is harder with family members, most people aren't wearing masks in a home within their cohort of family members, but even just opening up the windows a little bit can help. The use of portable air cleaners can help, uh, particularly if you're sharing a room with someone who's not a close family member. Uh, and this can help reduce the concentrations or buildup from the smaller aerosols that will stay aloft. If you're outside uh, and, and at least six feet away from somebody, do you still need a mask based on the evidence that you're accumulating? No, it doesn't look like it when you're outside. Uh, I do think it's a, a good idea, um, especially if you're going to be passing by somebody on a jog, swerve over, give them more than six feet if possible, right? But if you're just going for uh, you know, a walk in the park, you're not really going to be around people or you can you can maintain a six foot or greater distance, then you don't need to have the mask up at that time. If you had a couple people over, and, and again, you'd want to have people staying outside if you had people over at all, but if they came inside leaving doors open, windows open to try and create outside air, allowing outside air to come in, would that be a good, a good solution? Yeah, it's a great strategy. It's interesting. You know, Sanjay, when we were on with Dr. Fauci and I asked him the question about healthy buildings and airborne, is one of the things he said, yeah, just open up your windows a little bit, open up the doors. And, and he said it right. He said, well, it sounds so simple. And people think, does that really work? And the answer is, yeah, it really works. It's time for the total basics in public health, you know, hand washing, you know, these basic uh, precautionary measures. And it's a time for the basics of healthy buildings, which, yeah, open up the windows, create a cross breeze, open up the, uh, the door to help uh, facilitate the movement of air. If it's really uh, stagnant outside, you're not getting that air coming in, you could put a box fan in the window to help bring in some of that air. Anything you do to create air movement, bring some of that outdoor air indoors to dilute anything that's building up inside is a good idea. Maybe we could talk about schools specifically. You know, this is a big topic, certainly in our household, many households. I, I will just preface by saying I, I, I decided to go just visit my kid's school. One thing I did not ask about was ventilation. And I wish I had spoken to you beforehand now in retrospect, but what should I have asked? And what, what do we know in general about ventilation in public buildings like that? Uh, the reality is, is that schools are chronically underventilated. So let me explain this for a second, that th there's a standard setting body called ASHRAE that sets the standard for air quality in almost every indoor environment where we spend our time. Schools, offices, homes, they even set the airplane ventilation standards. Well, this standard, the name of it is the Standard for Acceptable Indoor Air Quality. That should tell you there's a problem with it. I have a problem with it. I don't want to be in a space that has acceptable air quality. I want good air quality or healthy air quality, right? So we have this minimum standard to start with. Schools, most schools don't even meet that standard. In fact, if you look at the studies across all across the United States, this is really common. On a, the typical school meets half of that minimum standard. Some schools meet a third of that. If the evidence becomes increasingly clear, which it sounds like it is, that there is an aerosol transmission here, what are the implications for people who are listening right now? What does that mean for them in terms of how they will live their lives? 
uh, just means, you know, it's nothing to be feared. It just means add these other controls, some things you haven't been thinking about, these engineering controls, right? And that's for schools and offices and everywhere else. Even in your, if you're in a car with someone or you're taking an Uber or a taxi, roll down the windows a little bit just to loot those indoor contaminants. So that's really all it is. It's just to take that additional precaution. It still fits in the, you know, the stay home when you're sick, mask up when you're out, avoid large gatherings, right? Especially indoors. This is what makes bars uh, can be really problematic. Get a lot of people under ventilated space talking loudly, generating large amounts of aerosol. Um, so it's just, you know, we've kind of intuiting a lot of this anyway, but it just means pay attention to one more thing in addition to the mass and hand washing. Crank open those windows a bit, let some more outdoor air inside our, our indoor spaces. We recently followed up with Professor Allen to talk about plans for reopening schools safely. He said that the ventilation problems still need to be addressed. And again, this does not have to be expensive or complicated. Opening up the windows, even in cold weather areas, an inch or two inches can help improve the air exchange rate. Here's how he suggests it be done. Well, this is where the plug-and-play portable air cleaner with a HEPA filter costs a couple hundred dollars. These are the types of resources the federal government can provide that provide an instant stopgap measure to help address airborne particles in classrooms that could be delivered in weeks. And it's simple technology. You plug it in and you turn it on high, put it in the middle of the room, you're done. Now, Allen's team estimates that installing air filters in every classroom would cost around a billion dollars, which is much less than the cost of completely renovating the ventilation systems in every school building. He also thinks this would be effective, fast, it'd be a great strategy that would allow schools to reopen even sooner than the Biden administration's target of his first 100 days. And there's been another development that may help schools reopen sooner. Just last week, the CDC updated its school guidance to reduce physical distancing from six feet to three feet. Now, there are some circumstances where six feet will still apply, such as during lunchtime when mask wearing is not possible, and also in common areas like lobbies. But this is a big deal. Allen has said that while six feet of distance should be maintained for adults, three feet should be more than enough for children, who, it's pretty clear, are impacted differently by the coronavirus. All of the ventilation advice Allen gives is not just for public places as well. These are helpful reminders for our own homes. Open up your windows, use an air filter, get outside whenever possible. We've used basic airflow strategies like this in our buildings to prevent spreading for a long time, and that's because they really do work. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.